Well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate you coming out to worship the Lord. We appreciate everybody who's with us online. And we are glad that you are keeping yourself safe. And we are looking for the day when this pandemic lifts enough that you can be back with us too. Well, we've come to the center of the center of our series of lessons on hard love, the last lesson. And really, the communion talk that Jeremy just gave is enough. I, I often have this feeling, I've confessed this to you before so many times after Jeremy gets up and delivers these beautiful little jewel-like sermons before the communion. I don't want to get up here. I was like, well, can we just sing the invitation song and go on? But, and, and what he preached to us about today to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper is really what I want us to meditate on for our sermon this morning. The hard love of the Christian life, the hard love, that we are all called to centers on the love of Jesus Christ sacrificing himself to save you and to save me. So many other things get their orientation and their compass point from understanding that the God who made the universe sent his one and only son so that you wouldn't die, but instead you would be saved. The hard love that saves each one of us calls us to love as well. There are a lot of ways to investigate this. There's hardly a book in the Bible that doesn't shed some light on this. But I want everybody to turn to the book of Romans, and for today, we'll just stay in Romans. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greeks. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It is the best of all good news that's ever been proclaimed. And it is a message that the world needs now more desperately than it has ever needed it. The words you have the power to say to someone who doesn't know them yet are words more important than any other message that that person can hear. The good news of Jesus Christ that God sent him to sacrifice to save sinners. In order to understand this hard love of Jesus Christ, we have to understand some hard truths about ourselves. I must face the hard truth. Each sin makes me more of an enemy to God, whose judgment I 
must face. Each sin, big sins, little sins, sins I've gotten so used to my heart is hard about them, each sin makes me an enemy to God. And one day I will stand before God. That is a hard truth. And that's the truth that Paul helps us to focus on as he begins his book of Romans. He says in verse 18, chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what has been known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible, invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And for two chapters, he expounds that theme and explains what that looks like in little ways and in big ways, among the pagans and among the Jews themselves, those who follow the law, those who've never heard of the law. This is what the power of sin over and over again in culture, this is what it does to us. This is what it means to be raised by people who themselves, even if they're somewhat righteous, have been uh, given over to a culture of sin this is what it's like, and he gets to chapter 3, and he says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous. This is chapter 3, verse 10. No one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And a little bit later in verse 23 of chapter 3, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I can point to people who are worse than we are. I was doing that while I was reading this. That's how instinctive it is. Well, I'm not as bad as some. I got, I got some people I can point to that are worse than me, God. And Paul is not going to let us off the hook. When I fail to give God the righteousness he created me for, the love that he created me for, I make myself his enemy. And he will judge me. He is coming to judge. That's a hard truth. That's such a hard truth that we have all kinds of ways to dodge it. That's what Netflix is, folks. That's, that, that's what video games are. 
well, it's not the only thing those things are, but that's what they are for. That's what drugs and alcohol, meaningless sex, that's, that's a lot of what drives that stuff. I don't want to think about what I'm really like. I don't want to face this hard truth. My brain rebels at looking openly and honestly at what I'm actually like. Sometimes people will say things like, there's no such thing as sin. All that sin talk is, is old. We've outgrown that. There's no such thing as sin. Look through the most powerful microscope. Look into the greatest telescope we can invent. Investigate everything that science reveals to us. Not a single thing has even a smidgen of sin attached to it. There's no morality anywhere in the universe. It's a morally meaningless universe that science reveals to us. There's no such thing as sin. There's so many things wrong with that, I don't know where to start. But two points I'll make. You already know that science is the wrong tool to investigate the question of right and wrong. Sometime you can come in here for lectures I have on this, but it's specifically designed to ignore questions of right and wrong and a lot of other questions. Science is never going to tell you about right and wrong. It's never going to discover for you sin or righteousness. That's not what we built it for. But the deeper thing is this. You already know. I already know that the universe cannot be a morally meaningless universe. Unless I deliberately suppress that knowledge every day, hundreds of times a day, I'm reminded, no, the universe has moral meaning. What I do matters. I know that as well as I know myself. I cannot believe that my actions don't matter, that your actions don't matter. I can't believe it. I can't. Nobody has ever managed to make themselves believe that there is no such thing as right and wrong. I don't care what they say uh, when they write and when they speak in philosophy conferences. Nobody believes it, trust me. That's just something we can't believe. That is a, that is a piece of God that, that has been evident to every human being, all of human existence. That what we do matters, morally matters. And our moral failures are true failures. Some people say, well, there's just no such thing as God. There's no judge. There's no God out there to judge us. And again, I don't even think that's a position that anybody can really occupy. I think you know, you don't know everything about God, but I think every human being knows some things about God. They know that this universe has a point. It has a meaning. 
They know what I've already talked about, that the universe has a moral purpose. Nobody can make themselves believe that this is a morally, uni uh, morally meaningless universe. But people also know that our thoughts connect somehow to the truth of the universe, at least some of the time. When we doing science or when we doing other kinds of things, our thoughts can connect to the truth. You know that's not possible unless there is a God. It's just not possible. And nobody can make themselves believe that these thoughts of ours are meaningless, pointless thoughts. Everybody knows, unless I deliberately suppress that knowledge, which is what Paul is griping about, I know that this universe has somebody behind it. I don't know much about him, perhaps. I can, I can expend some energy to find out more. Some people will say, well, okay, there's a God of some kind, but, but if there is a God, the God I would believe in is a God who wouldn't ever judge us anyway. The God of love. He wouldn't judge us. I might say that. But I find I can't believe that either. Because in order to believe that, I have to actually believe judging is a bad thing. And that I know is false. When I see racial injustice, I know that's bad. I want that to be fixed. When I say a warmonger invading another country, I know that's unjust. That needs to be fixed. You could make your own list. You know you're not in a position. None of us are in a position to say, wanting justice is terrible. And therefore, if there is a God, he wants perfect justice. And he will have it. He will have it. And if you think about that for very long, you realize this hard truth. Every sin that I commit makes me more of an enemy to a God I must face in judgment. That's where Paul wants us to start. He wants us to understand what our true situation is. He knows our mind and our psychology will twist and turn and dodge and weave and try to suppress and try to avoid and try to just not think about it. But he says, I want you to understand your situation. God is coming. He will judge. Understand who you are in the face of God's righteousness. And then, right there, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, he does the flip. Because he says, in chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Paul, having told us 
the true bad news about who we are before God's righteousness begins to expound to us the good news. The book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8, it will only take you 15 minutes to read it. I recommend the whole thing to you. But I'm not going to read it all right now. But I want you to look over in, verse, in chapter 5. Look at verses 10, uh, 6 through 10. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Excuse me, Paul. When we were enemies, when we were sinners, and when we were powerless. Did you catch that? powerless. Paul says if you want to understand this hard love of Jesus Christ, there's something else you need to grasp. I must admit my failure and my poverty before God and realize that Christ has come to pay the price that I couldn't. I don't have the power to make things right with the perfectly righteous God. What if I say, God, from here on out, I'm going to do everything just right. I know I messed up in the past. I'm going to do everything just right now. Every day for the rest of my life, I promise to serve you. God is the perfectly righteous God. How much righteousness do I owe him right now? All of that. So the debt that I accrued for sin, even the smallest sin, cannot be paid for by giving God what I already owe him. Righteousness from this day forward. What if I say, I'm going to do extra, God. I got money. I'm going to give money to the poor. Give the shirt off my back. Give my body to be burned, God. How many of those things that I just listed are gifts that God gave me? Do you think it makes sense for me to take the things God has given me and pay him back with those? I can't do it. I am poor in the face of the righteous God. I am a failure 
in the face of the righteous God. Paul, if you read this part of Romans, says the best of us, the most righteous of us, are failures in the face of the righteous God. But God has done this amazing thing. He has sent his son to pay the price we could not pay, to redeem those who are sold as slaves to sin, to redeem. Chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have a debt we cannot pay God himself steps in, in the flesh, as Jesus Christ, to pay that debt. Now what? Paul says, now your life is different. Not because you're going to, you know, somehow manage to pay God back. Not because you're going to somehow do something that makes God say, oh, and you're good too. That's not the way this works. Your debt is paid and your life is now purchased for God. And Paul says it's the best thing that can possibly happen to us. He ends chapter 8 this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? He talks about this messed up world we're in. If God is for us, who can be against us? <clears throat> he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face danger all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the best news that anyone has ever heard. It is news that people need today. Your friends, your family, they need this news today if they don't know it. <clears throat> Paul says, God does not take us out of this messed up world. God gives us confidence and courage to face this world. I find myself lifted up by the love of Jesus to a life of confidence and courage for him. You notice that? 
It says, we face these things now, famine and nakedness and sword, and, and we face these things. For your sake, we're slaughtered all day long. We face these things, but we face them knowing that if God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and has seated him right there at the right hand of God interceding for us, nothing can separate us from his love. There's no one who can bring a prosecution against us successfully. No one. And that is not given to us so that we become passive and weak. Do you notice that? That's not given to us to say, well, I couldn't help myself, so I guess I just let Jesus do everything. It's the opposite kind of teaching for Paul. This is given to Jesus does what we cannot do so that we are activated to live with confidence and courage. Do you get that? We face... Do you notice that? We face, for, you, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are as considered as sheep to be slaughtered, quoting Psalms. We face. So yes, Jesus does these things, and we are empowered because of him. I love that. We face death. And it can't beat us. We face life. We face angels. We face demons. The present, the future, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation. And we stand firm in the love of Jesus Christ. We cannot be separated from the love that came from heaven to save us. We stand firm in the hard love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, give us the strength and the wisdom to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love that you've expressed in Jesus Christ. And God, give us the confidence and the courage to live our lives for you, in that love. God, help us to lift up those who are hurting. Help us to say no to sin. Help us to organize our life as it is needed so that we can more cleanly and more fully serve you. And God, help us to have courage to say what needs to be said to those around us. God, give us the strength to live this life for you. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you are ready to receive baptism in the name of Jesus Christ who came to save you and gave himself so that you can be washed clean of your sins, or if you need prayers or something else that we can do for you, why don't you come forward, tell us your need as we stand and are led in song.